welcome to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, the podcast where we lift the lid, bust the myths and explore the incredible history of the First World War. I'm Dan Hill, a military historian and battlefield guide specialising in the history of the war on the Western Front. And I'm Dr Spencer Jones, author and senior lecturer in war studies at the University of Wolverhampton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Germany's massive spring offensive of 1918, a last-ditch attempt to win the war that would break the deadlock before the American Expeditionary Force arrived in strength. Well, hi there, Dan. It's always a pleasure to be joining you again on the podcast, and we've got a really quite different battle to cover today, or I should say series of battles, because we're going to be taking a look at the German Springer's offensive waged between March and June 1918. Battlefields or parts of the battlefield that perhaps aren't visited so often, but I know you've been down and had a look at this fighting on the ground. Yeah, hi Spence. It's always a fascinating area to be covering. Uh, Spring offensive of 1918 is is groundbreaking in in more than one way, and uh, actually covering the, the battle it's particularly on the ground, gives an idea of just how big and uh, in terms of size and scale this battle really is going to be. And and it really alters not only the the broader picture across the entire Western Front, but alters the landscape in many ways. It's fought over ground that in some cases hasn't been touched yet since, or at least since 1914 in the war. So it's going to be a, a, a mammoth task to actually cover this. I know we've we've just come straight off the back of the Battle of the Somme and the Third Battle of Ypres, neither of which are particularly easy to cover in an hour. And I suspect we're probably lining up a long, similar situation with this one, because it's <laughs> going to be a tricky one to cover in that period of time. But what a fascinating, what a fascinating series of actions to cover. And it, it does take, I think, Spence, a little bit of... Um, a little bit of scene set to a certain extent because there are some really major changes that happened between the end of, of Third Epe in 1917 to the early part of 1918 on, on more of, a, I think, a strategic or even, a, you could say, logistical changes as well within the British Army's makeup. That's absolutely true. The situation for the Allies at the end of 1917 is just completely different to the situation at the start of 1917. Listeners who remember the episode about the Somme will remember that at the end of 16, the mood amongst the Allies was actually quite positive. They thought they'd won some victories or at least turn the tide against the Germans. Well, fast forward a year and by the end of 17, the Allies are deeply depressed at the situation. And you don't have to look too far to understand why. If you just look at the major Allied powers in Europe, all of them have had horrible years in 1917. The French, we've discussed briefly, I'm sure we'll look at them in a lot more detail in future episodes, they're still recovering from their mutinies of April 1917. The Italians... Well, they've not really featured much in this podcast series, but they've suffered an absolutely crushing defeat at the Battle of Caporetto in the autumn and winter of 1917 that's led to German and Austrian forces crossing the Alps and actually getting into the northern Italian plain and threatening Venice. A complete reversal of the situation in Italy, and the British and the French have had to rush troops to the Italian front to stabilise the line. The Russians have gone out of the war entirely. Of course, there's been the Bolshevik Revolution at the end of 1917. They're negotiating a peace treaty, such as it is with the Germans, and the Germans are going to inflict punitive losses of territory on the Russians. But crucially, the entire Russian army is gone. It's out of the equation, and that's freed up thousands, hundreds of thousands, almost a million German troops are now available for transfer from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. And over on the British side, of course, as we looked at the British at Third Deep last episode. Well, the British aren't in great shape, are they, Dan? 
No, they're really not. In fact, they're seriously struggling for manpower, amongst other things. And if you you can imagine, I think we summarised it last time by talking a little bit about this perfect storm that's brewing to a certain extent. And it really is, because there are a couple of changes within the, the British Expeditionary Forces order of battle as well, which come into play about February 1918, and they shake up the entire situation. In short, the British um, high Command out on the Western Front are really strapped for troops by this time. Haig has been writing home asking for more troops. British government are really fairly loath to release troops about this time. And as a result, there has to be a major shake-up, not only in terms of the tactics that are deployed on the Western Front, but in terms of the troops and how they're even going to be formated together, how they're going to be put into divisions. So we see a fairly important change that takes place just around February of 1918, which sees the makeup, the structure of a British division go from 12 battalions down to nine. This is on paper, perhaps not a particularly interesting or particularly important change, but actually on the ground, it's really important. Because what you start to see is that units that would previously serve the last two or three years even, alongside other battalions who got to know each other, their way of fighting, can rely upon each other, some of these units have now been completely transplanted into completely different divisions and have no idea what their new structure is like that they're working to. And this is going to place a real significant amount of strain on those troops in the line. At the same time, Brits have now got to take on more line themselves, so those Smaller units are now getting stretched thinner as they take up more of the burden from the French. All of these things are going to play into the same bigger story, and we should add to that as well. The fact that the British Army, as experienced as it might be in offensive operations on the Western Front, is not experienced in defence. And this is going to be really put to the test in March. And there's no wonder, I think, in, in many ways, Spencer, when the Germans start looking about who they're going to be attacking in the first section of those attacks that we now know as the Spring Offensive, they look at the weakest power they can find on the Western Front. And they're not looking at the French. No, that's very true. And yet there's also a fascinating element to that German decision because they decide that the British are, if they can defeat the British or at least drive the British away, then the French will be in a vulnerable position and they can be crushed. But if they attack the French, the British will come to the French aid. And so the initial strategic plan, operational plan for the Germans is we're going to hit the British with everything we've got. We're going to split the British from the French. The British will do the way, act the way perfidious Albion always acts. They'll retreat towards the coast. And if necessary, they'll evacuate. They'll go back to Britain. Well, that's okay because it could take them a long time to come back to Europe. While that's happening, we're going to crush the French instead. And where it's best to attack? Well, you attack at the junction point of those two armies. And we talked about this in the Somme episode when we covered 1916. The junction point for the British and the French is the Somme battlefield. And that is one of the most fought over regions and has not been repaired or rebuilt in any way, shape or form after not only the destruction of 1916, but also the German retreat from that area. You might remember from the 1916 episode that the Germans fell back to a new position, the Hindenburg Line, and they devastated the region as they retreated. So there's nothing there. It is probably the most devastated square miles on the entire Western Front. And into this devastated area, you're going to put British Army, specifically British Fifth Army, which had led off the offensive at Passchendaele, eventually being replaced in August. It's denuded of manpower. Its infantry manpower has shrunk by about a quarter. It's tired. The army is tired from Passchendaele. And it's mentally tired as well, physically and mentally tired. And then you're sending them down to the front 
devastated region where you don't even have roads, let alone railways or ammunition dumps or aerodromes or tankerdromes or anything like that. It's all missing. You're sending them down there, this tired, weary army, and you're saying, oh, by the way, the French need to conserve some manpower, so you're going to take over 42 miles of front. I can't think of too many less welcome billets for an army in early 1918. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, you can imagine, you know, it's these these same guys that, as you said, have been really badly bloodied in the in the earlier months of the previous year as well. So it's it's... There's a little bit of a kind of Battle of the Bulge Ardennes feel to this, you know, move down to what is a quieter sector for that short period of time. But the the truth is there's no real surprise element to this as well because the British are fairly soon aware that something is coming. In fact, if you have any idea what's going on in the bigger picture around Europe, there's no surprise at all that the Germans are going to launch an offensive. That's maybe something we should look at in a little bit of detail because there is a, a very much a stopwatch or a timer counting down the whole time that this is going on. Because whilst the Germans may have freed up something in the region of 50 divisions, there is a few thousand miles away uh, an untapped resource that is finally getting tapped. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that is, of course, the might of the United States, which had entered the war in April 1917, initially enraged by the German use of unrestricted submarine warfare, which I know we'll cover in a future episode, and then further enraged when a top-secret German telegram was intercepted by the British and very carefully leaked to the Americans. And this was the so-called Zimmerman telegram, which invited Mexico to join the Central Powers and invade the southern United States. I'm not entirely sure how much military value Germany would get from an alliance with Mexico, but whatever it was hoping to get, it didn't get. Instead, it got the United States entering the war. But something to bear in mind for listeners who are more familiar with the Second World War is when the United States goes to war in the First World War, it is completely unprepared for this conflict. It's not the arsenal of democracy that it will become in the Second World War. In fact, one of the reasons the Americans are the arsenal of democracy by 1941-42, is specifically to avoid the problems they've had in 1917. Instead, without a really large army to draw upon, the American army is absolutely tiny in 1917. They basically do the same as the British, launch a mass call for volunteers, which receives a huge response, and then try and carve an army out of this huge wave of volunteers that arrive. In fact, in 1917, the most important military contribution the Americans make is probably its fleet, uh, particularly its destroyers, which join the Royal Navy in hunting U-boats, and its money. But its army is going to take a long time to get ready. And the Allies put huge amounts of pressure onto the Americans saying, send us individual divisions and we'll absorb them into our army. And the Americans resist this and say, no, we're coming over en masse or we're not coming at all. But that is taking a long time. And it's not expected the Americans are going to arrive in strength until around about May, June, July 1918. Now, when they do arrive, this is a massive injection of manpower, eager young manpower, hugely motivated, definitely going to fight very hard. But it's taking an agonizingly long time. And for the Allied leadership in early 1918, the fact the Americans seem to be taking their sweet time to assemble this army, equip it, train it, and bring it over is very frustrating. But for the Germans, it's both a threat and it's an opportunity. Of course, it's a threat because once those that American force arrives, the numbers game, which you've alluded to in other episodes, is going to be hugely weighted against the Germans. But it's also an opportunity because as long as the Americans aren't in the field, there's this very brief window 
maybe six, six to nine months from the fall of Russia in the autumn of 17 up to the summer of 18, where Germany will have a numerical advantage over the Allies in the Western Front. And so the Germans see this as a chance to move fast and smash the Allies before the Americans arrive, whereas the Allies are watching that stop clock thinking, where are the Americans at this stage? So this, there's high stakes and there is definitely a time pressure going on here. Yeah, exactly as you say. And I think one of the things that's particularly interesting about this is this is clear pretty much to anybody who's reading a newspaper or understands anything about the Great War at the time. You know, everybody knows that by the time the Americans get there in big numbers, things are going to change. And certainly Germany is now starting to feel the squeeze of things like the naval blockade and resources are getting starved at home. So, you know, it's a really bad situation to be in. But there is this window of opportunity. And the Brits are aware of this as well, as of course are the French. And so there now becomes something of a shift. And if you combine this with the reshuffle of divisions and the taking on of the extra line, there needs to be a shift on the ground as well. And if we think back to 1917 and how effective the Germans have been in employing their new in-depth tactics on the Ypres front, this thing needs to be mirrored or partly mirrored at least along the entire length of the British line. And we're talking, of course, now about forward zones, battle zones and defensive or counteroffensive zones where defence in depth can prove to be basically an unassailable defensive position that the Allies are able to hold off the Germans against. Now, the concept itself is been pretty well put forward by the Germans and the Brits understand the difficulties of attacking against it. I'm not so sure, Spence, that they actually understand the nuances of employing it with their own divisions in a defensive manner. This is very true. So there's a few things to bring out onto this. And one is that the British have not fought a, a really major defensive battle on the Western Front since 1915. And that's the second Battle of Ypres in April and May 1915. So yes, there's been localised battles. The British have been roughly handled by German counterattacks, especially at the Battle of Cambrai at the end of 17. There's been problems there, but they've never faced a major modern German offensive. 1915, in terms of tactics and technology, is a lifetime away from 1918 in many respects. What the Germans are going to bring in 18 is going to be very different. And it's one thing, and this is... I smile in my own way at this because if you've ever worked in a large company and suddenly there has been a new policy introduced and all the paperwork is produced and it's all sent to you and somebody higher up the chain just automatically assumes, of course, this will all be put into practice. And in reality, quite often, it's not put into practice properly, despite the the most willing efforts, the most willing hands of the staff. Well, imagine that, except now with an army of millions, because the decision to switch onto a defensive posture is made at the end of 1917. A new doctrine is actually issued for the entire British army about how they're going to do this, how they're going to construct their defences, how they're going to fight in their defences. And it's essentially a copy of the German system the Germans have been using with great success in 1917. And it's beautifully written. It's beautifully produced. It's sent out. It goes down to all the uh, division, uh, division formations. It says, this is what you've got to do. And I imagine lots and lots of divisional COs and brigade COs and battalion COs said, well, this is all very nice, but how on earth are we going to do it? Because it requires a massive amount of work, not only to prepare the defences, because the British have been building their defences such as they are, with a view to attacking from them. So you don't build them in quite the same way the Germans do. You've got to rebuild all these. You've then got to train differently because the layout is different. Previously, the British have emphasised holding the front line, repelling the Germans, 
take it from there. Now they're going to move to a more German system where let the Germans come on a little bit, disrupt them with strong points and then counterattack them. That requires completely new training at every single level from your humble uh, company sergeants right up to your colonels, up to your brigadiers, up to your divisional commanders. It's going to take a really long time. And you're asking an army that's tired, that's just lost a quarter of its infantry manpower and has just been shifted to this absolute wilderness down on the Somme, has to rebuild the basics for it can do this. Oh, by the way, you need to do this really quickly because the Germans are coming as soon as the weather clears. That's not an enviable task, I have to say, Dan. It's really not. And, and given that as well, of course, the Germans are really putting in quite a lot of effort here to make sure that they give themselves the best chance of, of being successful. Well, we'll talk, I'm sure, about uh, stormtroopers and that kind of thing in a moment. But I'm going to break from what we normally do, which is not really to use documents to look at and just to have a chat, you and I. And I'm going to bring up one, uh, one particular document I think is fascinating. I've actually got in front of me here, which is issued on the 1st of January 1918. It's a German summary looking at all of the British uh, and uh, Commonwealth divisions on the Western Front at that time. And it rates them from class five, which is uh, mediocre, to class one, which is outstanding. And it looks at all of the British divisions. And what I find fascinating about this, because of course, we all know that there's a, a little bit of friendly rivalry amongst the Empire troops uh, when we talk about the performance on the Western Front. This actually rates these divisions without any particular axe to grind. It simply wants to know who they're up against and what their abilities are. And some of these are fascinating for me. I'll just run through a few of these, Spencer. I know we could we could spend hours on this, and perhaps some listeners here will really enjoy that. Others maybe less so. But in the <laughs> in the category for mediocre are a few surprises actually. The thirty eighth Welsh Division are mm. uh, put within that number. We've got the uh, the fortieth Division who are actually going to face a fair amount of the brunt of this attacking, uh, the 49th West Riding Division and the uh, 62nd 2nd West Riding Division. All of those are rated as mediocre, so the, the lowest category of German troops. What do you think about that one? Well, as a somebody with some distant Welsh ancestry, I'm infuriated that 38th Welsh Division end up in that list. <laughs> but one thing that does actually comment on is, how do the Germans analyze this? It's an interesting question. And one of the ways they analyze it is German intelligence is, is probably, in some ways, it's better in the First World War than it is in the Second World War. German army is quite good at working out what's in front of it, and it's quite good at trench raiding as well. We tend to think of trench raiding as boys' own adventures that are the preserve of the British. The Germans are excellent trench raiders too, and they'll get into a British trench, snatch a few prisoners, get them back, interrogate them, learn something about them. Germans have also got good signals intelligence. They're good at reading British signals, and they've got a good area reconnaissance too. And their assessment of why divisions are poor is often from things like when they capture troops in trench raids, how, how far can they go into the British trench system? How, Many troops can they capture? What what are the state of the troops when they get them out? And those divisions that are rated mediocre, they don't have the information in front of me. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Germans had been biffing them pretty severely in the autumn winter of 1917-18 uh, and taking some prisoners. So these are, I would say, if you were if even if you're British, and I'm thinking here of Robert Graves, here, author of Goodbye to All That, fought with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, a poet and an author 
controversial character, but somebody ultimately came to love the British Army despite everything else. And he drew up a list himself, published in Goodbye to All That, listing elite divisions. And it was mainly regulars, Canadians, Australians, a few of the real crack territorial new army divisions. Uh, but he didn't mention any of those that were listed as mediocre, I'm afraid, Dan. So th <laughs> these are somewhat unloved divisions. But as we'll see, actually, some of these are right in the path of the storm as the Germans attack. And uh, they're going to have to fight the best of their ability. But I'm intrigued now. So we've we've some, seen some mediocre divisions. What are the Germans rate as Britain's crack formations? Well, interestingly, they pretty much agree with exactly the same units that you've just mentioned there with from Goodbye <laughs> to All That. So at the very top, and we've got um, a, a number of... No real surprises in here, actually, as far as I can see. But we've got the very, the, the very cream of the British Army, the Guards Division, the 7th Division, the 9th Scottish, who have already featured with us before, the 29th Division, who have also featured with us, 33rd, 51st Highlanders, who I would mm. entirely agree, one of the mm. premier British units of the entire Great War, 56th Division, the 1st Londons, who do struggle on the Somme, actually, in uh, in 1916, 63rd Royal Naval Divisions, a oh. little bit of a wild card, so uh, mm. I, I'm sure they considered themselves elite, but I'm surprised <laughs> that the Germans did as well, but uh, an excellent unit. And then unsurprisingly, and I think uh, most intriguingly, actually, Every single Canadian division on the Western Front is put down within the elite category, as are two of the three, uh, two of the four Australian divisions out in the line at that time. So, first and second Australian division and the New Zealand division all put down as uh, the very highest caliber of British troops. So, quite interesting, and it's it's. I don't know if there are any surprises in there, but it does give you an idea. The Germans are, you know, they're they're looking carefully to see if they can spot weaknesses and they're probably looking around the line as well i should add to this a caveat they also rate three divisions in this order of battle document which don't exist <laughs> well there's a good example of where i've just been praising german intelligence being quite good <laughs> it's not perfect just like no military intelligence is perfect but that's that's quite interesting and interesting too about what the who the germans rate as elite and as crack and i Little dispute there. As you say, one or two wild cards are tucked in there, uh, but some divisions that are quite iconic within the British Army of the First World War. And interesting to me, some divisions that are, are repeatedly smashed up and go in again, mm. especially 7th Division and 29th Division, which are destroyed many times over, and yet still by 1918, they're rated as elite, which I think is a says something about corporate spirit and about morale and about the psychology of, of being in an elite form and that actually leads me on to the next point, and this is to do with the, this reorganization which we've alluded to before, because you may listen to this and think, well, on the surface, okay, so the numbers have decreased, well, that's going to mean more work, it's going to be challenging for those who are left. But it's more than that for the British Army, because the British Army has such powerful bonds of loyalty within the regimental system. So you're a member of a battalion, battalion's about a thousand men. That's almost your second home. And within that, you have your family, which is going to be, by 1918, your platoon, which is part of that regiment. And these are regiments now that are being disbanded, folded, amalgamated. And in many cases, you're not going en masse to a new unit. It's not a case of you know, the, the, um, the, the 10th Londons get folded down and are sent to join their sister formation, the 6th Londons. In fact, units that are amalgamated are instead dispersed to wherever there's a need. So you're losing your friends, you're losing your mates, you're losing the unit that you've 
known throughout the war. And that's a heavy psychological blow too, isn't it, Dan? It is. And, and particularly when we now know, of course, it wasn't oh, it wasn't clear, certainly to the lads on the ground at the time, that you know there was this big this big storm coming. But you can imagine in terms of timing, it's a really awkward time to to be in the lines. I mean, we quite often talk about, and, and this is a good example maybe, just speaking about divisions now and even battalions and brigades to a certain extent. For the man on the ground, without, well, I think with relatively few exceptions, most of these guys don't really care what division they're in at all. A division is, is a way bigger structure than they're interested in. They're talking about platoon level, section level, company maybe. I, I don't know. There's been some research on this, I think, Spence, where they talk about where a where an individual soldier's loyalty lies. And, the, and the, the story is really, it doesn't really go much higher than the battalion, certainly not up to brigade. Mm, that's absolutely true. And if you're in a battalion, that is in some ways your, your family, your home, because that's where you'll have done your training. You'll have been given a full briefing about the glorious history of your battalion. Quite often these battalions have got a regional colour, especially if you're joining in the volunteer era, uh, 14, 15 and early 16. You've got something there, something to be proud of, something you're attached to. It gives you a sense of identity. And a sense of identity for a soldier in an army as large as this is really important because it's very easy to just become lost in a million khaki figures. It's easy to feel that you're just, you don't have anything to gr grip onto. But being part of a battalion, you've got your badge, you've got that regimental loyalty. You may have a slightly distinct uniform. Different battalions wear slightly different uniforms. So Scots regiments wear kilts, for example. It gives you this identity and it makes you feel part of something. And if that's your, um, that's your home, then your family is your platoon. You've got your section, you'll be in a section. You'll be specialised based on your section, whether you're a rifleman, a Lewis gunner, a grenadier, a rifle grenadier, or you're in the HQ section. And these are the people you're going to spend so much of your time with. You're, they are going to be your best friends, uh, for better or for worse. You know, you do read about soldiers fighting each other, falling out with each other. That is a problem. But these are the people you're going to spend all your time with. And you're going to be part of this wider regiment. And there's a real sense of them against us. Quite a lot when you read about ill discipline behind the lines with the British, it's usually because one group of soldiers from one battalion have been drinking. They start abusing soldiers from another battalion. They defend themselves. Punches get thrown, and then when the raw military police arrive, everyone stops fighting themselves and starts fighting the military police. It's a story as old as the British Army, I think, in many respects. And then you're suddenly saying to these guys, well, it's time to, re you're being reorganised, you're being sent away. Um, you're Dan, you're going to that battalion. Spencer, you're going to that battalion. Steve, you're going to that battalion. John, you're going to that battalion. And you're not only losing your battalion, which is all you've known in the army, you're also losing your friends and your family. Your platoon is getting broken up in some cases. People you've trained with, you've worked with, you know really well. You probably know more about them than their own family does in some respects. So you don't have that anymore. You're getting parachuted into an unfriendly well, I say unfriendly, an unknown is a better word. Mm. An unknown battalion, you've got to suddenly drop into a platoon which might have very strong bonds already and they're going to look at you as the outsider. Well, who are you, new guy? Um, not necessarily going to get a warm welcome. And then on top of that, you're tired and you've got to do tons of work. And I don't think that element is fully appreciated properly within studies of, of the army. Within the army, I think there's a lot of glibness within the army at the time about, well, this won't be a problem. It's that They'll all work it out. And they do. In the end, they do work it out. But 
in that winter of 1918, those that January, February, it must have been incredibly hard. Well, it is incredibly hard. We only have to look at some of the letters home. And where some soldiers do adapt very readily, they're, they're not that bothered. As long as they've got something to do, they've got some hot food, they've got their job, they're happy. Other soldiers are, really feel keenly the fact they've lost the, their bonds of family. And it goes all the way back as well to... The training issue you mentioned, so the, the British have adopted defence in depth, but they need to train differently in it. It's not a system of training the British have used before. And you've got people who are still getting to know each other within units. They haven't got that immediate bond of trust that's forged through training and indeed through battle. And you're asking them to try and adopt a completely new form of training with people they might not necessarily know that well at a time when you're also asking them to do a staggering amount of manual work. Yeah, and I think we should probably drill down in a moment just into the idea of actually how defence in depth should be employed should be employed by the Brits. Just while you were talking there, it reminded me of a particular account, and I wish I had the guy's name in front of me. It's a soldier of the Hertfordshire Regiment who gets transferred into the 6th Battalion of the Bevertshire Regiment in early part of 1918, and he recalls in his diary that he goes up to the... and. You decide whether you think this is a particularly bright idea or not. But when arriving at his new platoon within the uh, within the Bedfords, he uh, decides it's a good idea to go up to his company sergeant major and uh, and make the point that he thinks he should be allowed to continue to wear his Hertfordshire Regiment cap badge. <laughs> to which the company sergeant major gives a a fairly blunt response, which the the, the general translation is is no. But it gives you an idea that these guys, some of them still want to keep retain that identity and are proud of the the backgrounds that they've come from. But yeah, absolutely. It's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating time. And and timing is everything in early 1918 because all of these things are coming together at the same moment. Now, uh, in terms of Spence, the what should have been done in terms of uh, putting if we take a, a hundred troops and we take an area of, of line and say, okay, well, how are they going to get dispersed to best operate within the defense in depth system? We know by now that the, the front line is not meant to be hold in any held in any great numbers. In fact, front line is probably something of a misnomer because we're not really even talking about lines at this point, are we? It, it, it's something different to that. That's right. So the British want to adopt a system very similar to that which the Germans use. And the British even adopt some of the terms that the Germans have. So rather than referring to a front line or a second line or a third line, which had been the way trenches were constructed in 15 and 16, instead the British adopt the term zone. And a defensive position will now have three zones. The forward zone, or sometimes called the front zone, which is really lightly held. It's where the old front line would be, but it's really there just to disrupt and break up any German offensive. So the strong points interconnected, hopefully. There's plenty of barbed wire to try and funnel the Germans in certain directions, but it's there to absorb the initial blow of the Germans, break them up. Some Germans may get through, but they'll be dispersed and, and tired. They'll have to divert resources to fight in the forward zone. And it's there to really blunt that initial offensive. The main battle is going to be fought in what's called the battle zone. And the battle zone is the most heavily fortified part of the front. A zone, by the way, is somewhere in the region. It varies from area to area. It's not prescriptive. But each zone is about 2,000 to 3,000 yards in depth, with perhaps another 2,000 yards between each zone. So you're looking at a fairly dense defensive position. If you take the maximum 3,000 yards for each of the three zones, separated by 2,000 yard intervals, you've got over 10,000 yards of defensive position there. 
The battle zone is where the main battle is going to be fought. And this is where the bulk of the troops are. It's where the bulk of the machine guns are. You've got more of a con uh, conventional defensive position here. So there are trenches, but there's also strong points, machine gun nests, bunkers in some cases. The British do build bunkers in parts of the front. That it's, it, this is where the Germans can go no further. They're going to be fighting in the battle zone. But remember, it's 3,000 yards deep. It's going to take a long time for the Germans to batter their way through. And in theory, they'll already be disrupted by the time they fought through the forward zone. They're getting hit with artillery all the way. Then they're in the battle zone getting hit with lots of machine guns and rifle fire. And the British expect to hold the Germans in the battle zone. Further back, you've got the rear zone. This is really a reserve zone, a logistics area. You've got lots of heavy artillery back here. So you don't want it up close, it can get overrun. It's not very mobile. You've got reserves back there as well. And these reserves can be used, just like the Germans have used them in 1917, to launch counterattacks. They'll exit from the reserve zone or rear zone, they'll go to the battle zone and they'll counterattack and hopefully push the Germans back. And the idea is that you don't hold every yard of trench. There's a general expectation the forward zone's probably going to get overrun, but that's okay because by the time the Germans have done that, they'll be really smashed up and they won't be in a position to storm the battle zone. And it is copying the German method. And you can understand why. The German method has held off the British and the French, for that matter, through 1917. The British have been really impressed by how formidable the German defensive belts are. Why not copy it? The Germans clearly know what they're doing. Copy it, make it a British system. But the problem is, of course, the Germans had spent years building this system. Listeners might recall the 1916-17 episodes. In some cases, the Germans have been there for years, not that much disturbed. They dug all kinds of things. They built all kinds of things. And they were used to it. It was their training was based on these kind of defensive systems, whereas, of course, the British haven't trained in this, as we've mentioned, and haven't even built it either. And I think that it's an opportunity here to just get into something that I think listeners might not be that familiar with, and that's just the sheer amount of manual labour a soldier in the First World War does, because it's not all fighting, is it? No, absolutely not. You know, some some poor infantryman has got to end up digging these positions. In fact, I mean, this is one of the things that we see when we look at the story for the really the first nine days of the offensive in March. In some cases, this in-depth and, and impressive system on paper is literally only on paper. There are points where troops are in, in a location where there should be a trench dug. And in fact, there might only be a bit of tape there marking where the trench needs to be dug. So there is a huge amount. You can imagine this rush. All of a sudden, you've got this change in posture from a, a almost exclusively offensive posture from the BEF's point of view in 1917 to now a defensive one. And all of a sudden, you've got to go around digging these trenches. And you can't really do what you did in 1914, which is to start adapting existing drainage ditches and this kind of thing. We're turning up now, in some cases, bits of virgin earth way back behind the lines, which haven't had trenches in them. These things have got to get dug and they've got to get dug in a hurry. And you know what? The one thing the British do have, despite the fact they're short on numbers and they have got thinned out area, they still do have a lot of men on the field. And these men, if they're not holding a line, they've got a shovel or a spade in their hand and they're digging new lines. So all of these things come into... And, and of course, this isn't conducive to one, training in this new system, learning how to fight in it, or of course, even having the energy to do so in the first place. So this hurry up and dig new positions also adds strain to completely to all other areas of a, a British soldier's daily life. It really does. And just to add to the confusion down on the Somme as well. So the Somme area is completely devastated. 
battle there in 16. Germans trashed the place when they retreated in 17. Uh, French farmers are starting to move into this area as well. And if there's one thing that really enrages <laughs> British soldiers, it's when you finish digging your trenches, you think you're going to get a little bit of time off. Oh, bad luck. You've been assigned to go and help prepare a French farmer's field. And there's actually this miniature mutinies where soldiers just say, I am not doing this. I'll dig a trench. I'll build a strong point, but I'm not plowing for, you know, Pierre's field for him. Um, and the, the fact that French the French civilians, I have to say, there's some hilarious letters that appear in British Army paperwork around this time because the French civilians don't seem to have much awareness that there's going to be a huge battle here. They, they just want to move in and say, well, my farm was there in 1914. I want it back. And the British Army feels a bit obligated to help them. Um, but their constant letter saying, demanding outrageous numbers of British soldiers come and help them move some stuff. <laughs> Not well received, <laughs> even though the British do actually detach some of their manpower to go and do this. And it means that if you're a soldier, you're always going to be tired, especially down on the Somme front. There's almost no time to rest. You're digging, you're moving, you're preparing. If you have any time for training, it's probably not going to be of the highest caliber because you're worn out. And the British do have other labor forces, things like the Chinese Labor Corps, the Egyptian Labor Corps, different laboring units around the place that can help. They also use some prisoners of war to do this, but there's never enough. There's just never enough spades to actually build this entire system. And what it means is by the eve of the German offensive down on the Somme, where you've got this huge front. It's 42 miles long. It's far too long for British Fifth Army to hold. You've got these, uh, these three zones I've mentioned, the forward zone, the battle zone, the rear zone. As you say, Dan, in many cases, especially the rear zone, it's just a line on a map. It, nothing's been built there. There might be some heavy artillery parked there. There might be some logistics wagons there. But the idea that there's any kind of defensive position here is, is absolute fantasy. And on top of this, in some areas, you have what's called the extreme zone, which has an interesting connotation, I think. Sounds a bit like a theme park. But you've got the extreme zone behind the rear zone. And that, in some cases, hasn't even been scouted out. Nobody's even gone down there to say, can we actually fight it? It's purely theoretical. And the British are working hard through all this. They're doing everything they can to prepare this. But it's this... It's just not enough. And commander of the Fifth Army, controversial figure, Hubert Goff, he actually writes later, he says, the only way we could have done this in time before the German attack was if I'd had a magic wand. And huge amounts of effort, backbreaking labour is carried out, but there's just not enough time. The front's too big and the Germans are coming. And I think that might be a nice segue, actually, Dan, to just look on the other side of the line a little bit and talk a little bit about the German army, because we always look at the Germans, of course, in these episodes. But it's interesting that the German army of 1918, it's, it's not the same army as 1917. No, it's a good point. And uh, just to, to finish on, on what you mentioned there as well, I think one of the final things to just to lay out for the listeners here as well is because of these lack of uh, prepared rear positions, what the Brits are going to fatally do, certainly in the case of several divisions, is overweight their front positions, their leading zone positions. And if they get overrun, if they get taken out, all of a sudden that's going to take a big chunk of the British order of battle out of play. And it's going to have pretty uh, pretty extreme impact on the fighting on those opening days. But as you say, Spence, we've got to, of course, switch across to the other side of the wire and look at the Germans and figure out exactly what their state of play is. Because by the 21st of March, when they're going to be launching that offensive, they too are going to be reshuffling their divisions. And they're going to be going for a, a new style of offensive, which is pretty high risk, um, has some quite a lot of things going for it. But we also need to bring into this the idea of terrain and the idea of 
pushing forwards beyond what has so far been seen as a, a kind of successful distance to cover. And also, I think to a certain extent, lack of direction once any initial exploit has been made. But it's the troops on the ground that got to do the job first, haven't they? They have. And the German army of 1918 is also pretty battered. It's been fighting really hard for years, of course. And not only has it been fighting very hard, it's also got a disadvantage that the Allies don't have, and that's that Germany is starving. Uh, Germany has been under brutal economic blockade, highly effective economic blockade from the sea by the Royal Navy, and daily calorie intake has been falling steadily since rationing was introduced in January 1915. And although the Germans prioritise feeding their soldiers, German soldiers are not as well fed as their Allied counterparts. And German soldiers coming into the army as well. It's noticeable that the young soldiers, the 18, 19-year-olds of 1918, they're a lot physically smaller than the soldiers of 1914 because they've basically been malnourished. So Germany has some disadvantages, but what it does have is a sense of destiny, a sense of victory in 1918, because Russia has been defeated. The first major Allied power has been knocked out of the war. Serbia had been knocked out of the war, of course, earlier, but very small power. Russia is a huge power, and that has shut down the entire Eastern Front. And the Germans very quickly move almost everything they have from the Eastern Front across Germany to the Western Front to provide a reserve of manpower. It's often said uh, that these were battle-hardened, experienced, veteran troops. Actually, we need to qualify that a little bit because the Eastern Front was never as intense as the Western Front in the First World War. In fact, divisions that had been smashed up on the Western Front were often sent to the Eastern Front to recover because the, the fighting there was not as intense. It's a very different type of war on the Eastern Front. And the troops that are actually being transferred across, about three quarters of a million German troops get shipped from the East to the West over the Christmas and New Year period, 1918. But their desertion rate as they transit Germany is really high. About 10% of the German army transiting actually deserts en route. In some cases, they're encouraged to desert because they've got family members who are waiting at train stations for them. In other cases, they say, well, I've survived the Eastern Front. There's no way I'm going to the Western Front. German casualty rates always much higher on the Western Front. So they're a bit of a mixed bag infantry-wise. But what crucially they do do is they give this huge injection of manpower. And that frees up lots of veteran units of the Western Front who could now go to be part of the front line, part of the assault, because the garrison duties have been taken over by these Eastern Front troops who can start to warm up. The other feature that comes is several experienced commanders who've led successful offensives, and above all else, the Germans bring pretty much their entire artillery park from east to west. And the German artillery, a bit more highly motivated, very experienced, a tradition of victory in the east. They ship over as well. And that, for the first time, gives them a huge artillery advantage out on the Western Front. They've got about 6,000 guns of all different calibers massed against 5th Army uh, down on the Somme, which outguns the British by a factor of about 50%. So there is a huge artillery advantage there. So something that the Germans go for in a big way that's a bit different to the British is gas. And they're going to be coming in March 1918 with a one-two punch of gas, aren't they, Dan? They are indeed. And, and gas is something that no doubt we'll cover in plenty of detail as we as we go on through this uh, through this podcast series. But 
gas, I mean, we, we've made the point already, but let's let's just make it again very briefly. Gas is not a big killer in the Great War. What it is is a huge inhibitor. But in this case, there's, a, I think, a, a fairly brutal element that's introduced here, particularly to be used on the British rear areas around the 21st of March attack. And that's going to be to use an irritant, which is going to be... If, it's, if the, the man under the gas cloud is going to be exposed to it, and these are delivered by shell, we should add, this is going to force somebody to take their gas mask off, which is going to then allow them to get hit by a far more deadly type of gas in the form of phosgene. Now, phosgene is a killer, and uh, certainly is something that if you get a lung full of it, you're not going to have a good day. And so these elements that are brought in, using an irritant to force you to take your gas mask off, followed by then attacking you with something far more potent and deadly is really, really horrific. It, it, it ups the stakes in an already horrific element of warfare. And these are going to be used to great effect, actually, right through until May. There's a single battalion that attacked on the 11th of May at a place called Funky Villa or Funk... Funky Villers, or Funky Villas, as these places are so often anglicised at the time. The entire battalion, about 900 men, are marching through the high street, and they're soaked, drenched under one of these one-two punch gas bombardments. By the end of the day, the entire battalion, minus two men, are in hospital. That takes an entire battalion out of the British Army's order of battle. This is incredibly effective. Doesn't kill that many, but none of those men are available to fight the following day. And in fact, there's a much wider burden on just getting those guys out of the front line in the first place. So it ties up even more troops. So this mm. is very, very effective. And when, now when we consider that being put into position with things like tanks and I think more crucially, stormtroopers in inverted commas, Spencer, we've got a, a real recipe for potential success. You have indeed. And just, just to echo that point as well, the Germans are bringing a much greater density of gas than the British are used to facing. And they're also, of course, backing it with masses of shrapnel and high explosive. The Germans have really got a, a powerful bombardment arm ready for this assault. And it's going to be the type of bombardment the British have never experienced on that scale before. The drum fire, which the Germans have had to endure in 16 and 17 from the British, the British haven't really faced that except very locally. Now they're going to receive it on the entire front. And more than anything else, it's the German artillery which is going to be the breakthrough arm in March 1918. That might come as a surprise to some listeners because you might know that the Germans employ tanks for the first time in, in significant numbers. Germans have got their own type of tank. It's called an A7V. They only build 20 of them. And box-like construction. It's definitely a tank that's been built by a committee. It's uh, it's mainly a propaganda tool, but they also have a, lot, a larger number of what they call Butepanzer, which literally means borrowed tank. And these are captured British and in some cases French tanks that they found abandoned on battlefields, which they've repurposed. They've changed the guns on so they can use German guns and they paint enormous iron crosses on them for a recognition, and they're going to use those as well. Now, the, the tanks of 1918, the, the German tanks of 1918, don't really do a great deal. They're not, there's not enough of them. There's, they don't have critical mass. But the British are aware they exist, and the British don't have an anti-tank gun. They don't have an anti-tank weapon at all in 1918, so they have to detach some of their artillery and, and send it forward to be used as improvised anti-tank guns. And the problem with doing that is, once you send those guns into the forward zone, you're never getting them back. Remember, the forward zone is not really meant to last that long. So the, if you've got an artillery piece there, no prospect of getting it out, which reduces the number of guns you have for firing back against the German assault. So 
The Germans' uh, use of tanks is mainly advantageous because it forces the British to divert their resources. But the other asset the Germans have, and this is probably the most famous for 1918, is their stormtroopers, who are specialist infantry formations who've been specially trained and specially equipped to be the spearhead of any German offensive. Uh, use has been pioneered in the East. They've been tried out in the Italian front, and now they're going to be used en masse in the Western front. British have already had a little bit of a taste of them in 1917 at the end of the Battle of Cambrai, but now they're going to be attacking on a much, much larger scale. And I think in... Military history were always drawn to the idea of elite troops with specialist equipment. There's something I think appeals to the uh, appeals to the boys in, in us with this kind of thing. But stormtroopers themselves are something of a mixed bag. They come in different size units, as many as a battalion, so about a thousand men, down to just a small company of stormtroopers that might be assigned a specialist task. They're well equipped. They've got machine pistols, so very early submachine guns. They've got body armor in some cases. Very heavy body armor, I might add. It's about 20 pounds for your breastplate. You've got lots of grenades, you've got flamethrowers, you've got light mortars, light German machine guns. And the idea with them is they're going to do something a little bit different to the regular German infantry. They're going to be used to try and exploit gaps and break through. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, we've said there are there are limited amounts of tanks on the German side in 1918. You could argue, I think it would be a bit of a stretch but you could argue that there are in fact thousands of them in, in the form of these individual soldiers <laughs> who have a, a not dissimilar kind of role they've got to play they're heavily heavily armored well armed and their job is to push forward and exploit gaps it's not to get hung up on british defense pockets of resistance that's somebody else's job so it's to push through work into the british vitals get into the rear positions and just keep going now this has got a i think a, a much larger potential to it and in fact we'll see it on the other side of the wire in August to a certain extent. But the, the main thing here is to get into the soft underbelly of the British positions and to, and to push forward and try and do some real damage to, to churn up the logistical chain, get across that devastated battlefield. Let's remember, we're fighting across the Somme battlefields of 1916 here. These have been really badly smashed up and that's going to be a big problem in, in, in much of the fighting to come. But the, the general idea here behind these stormtroopers, they're going to have a slightly higher ration, they're going to be given the best kit available, they're going to be pushing through, they're going to be the tip of the spear. But the thing to meant to clearly remember here is these guys are just as vulnerable to machine gun fire and artillery fire as anybody else. And in fact, they're going to take disproportionately heavy casualties as the battle goes on. That's very true. So they are still flesh and blood. And in a battlefield like the Western Front, where you've got masses of artillery firing, you've got machine gun barrages, you've got all sorts going on. It doesn't matter how well trained you are, there's so much lead flying around, there's a high risk to you. And in some ways, a little bit like tanks, which tend to do very well on the first day of a battle, but then suffer all kinds of breakdowns and attrition, the stormtroopers are a little bit of a one-shot weapon because you can employ them once or twice, but then they're going to get physically tired, they're going to take casualties. And crucially, the Germans cannot replace their stormtroopers these are troops, they've taken the physically the best troops they can find, the fittest, hardiest troops with some of the best NCOs and officers, and they've taken them from their parent units and then they've turned them into these elite specialist forces. And that's all well and good, but you can't recreate this. You can't 
undertake that level of training again in the midst of the campaign. So once the stormtroopers are expended, to use the euphemistic phrase of the First World War, they're not coming back. So the Germans need to get as much bang for their buck from them as possible. And there's another factor too, that by taking all the best troops that they could find and putting them into stormtrooper units, it means that the parent unit is often denuded of some of its best troops. It's left with the, um, the weaker soldiers, the weaker officers, the weaker NCOs. And so there's a lot of faith placed on this combination of a massive bombardment, some tanks and the stormtroopers to cause as much chaos as possible, to get behind the British, break up the British defences before they can even get settled. And that's really important when attacking a defence in depth because the idea the Germans have is not to give the British any time to get themselves set, not give them time any time to prepare a counterattack, instead force the British to fight all over their defensive position. So the stormtroopers will break straight through the forward zone and go into the battle zone and cause havoc, whilst the follow-up waves overwhelm the forward zone. Hopefully the stormtroopers, and in some cases they do this in 1918, go all the way clear. They actually break clear through the battle zone into the rear zone and cause havoc because they're shooting up heavy artillery, they're attacking logistics, they're attacking communications. Now, the, the British have tried this or something similar to this back, way back at Loose. Keen-eared listeners might remember the British made what were called into the blue attacks, just break through the trenches and keep going and something good will happen. Well, it didn't work in 1915 because they couldn't get through the frontline trenches to start with. But here, of course, the stormtroopers will. The defense in depth system does have gaps in it, and the stormtroopers are going to exploit it. And for soldiers on the ground, for British soldiers on the ground, suddenly seeing German troops right next to you when you didn't expect them to be is incredibly disorientating, disturbing, and, and frightening. And so they have a, a powerful psychological effect. That's right. And in fairness, that's exactly what they do see on the 21st of March 1918, aided by something I think if you could have offered for a set price, the Germans would have paid that price no matter how much it was. And that was a fortuitous fog that descends, in effect, across the entire front that they're going to attack on on the morning of the 21st of March, reducing visibility in some cases to 10 or 15 metres. Now, this is perfect for a German point of view. It does also come with some caveats. It's difficult for both sides to maintain cohesion and direction, of course, but it also shortens those line of sights from these islands, these these protective areas in the forward zone that the Brits are trying to use. And in many cases, those areas are outflanked without even a shot being fired, simply because the weather is so uh, it descends so much and the fog is so thick that troops are able to blast through those positions. And in many instances, the battle zone is actually hit on that first morning without troops even knowing there's an attack coming in, apart from, of course, this huge cacophony of guns that have preceded it. But that's it. The 21st of March, 1918 is, I think, if uh, I'll be interested to see what you think about this, Spencer, potentially the most devastating day from a British perspective in the entire war on the Western Front, certainly as far as casualties and the bulk of these being prisoners goes. That's absolutely true. The, the blow that's dealt to Fifth Army is absolutely massive. And just to add some weight to what you've said, Dan, that the fog on the 21st of March, anybody who's been down on the Somme, and I know you and I have, knows that Somme fog is just one of those features, just blankets the area. And if you've not experienced Somme fog, imagine the thickest sea fog, 
you can think of and you're stood in the middle of it. Visibility plummets. I mean, you will not see more than five, ten paces away from you. And on the 21st of March, it's blanketed. The entire area is blanketed with this. And into that, you've got this huge German gas bombardment, a huge German bombardment devastating, pounding fire that severs all the British communications. Despite the best efforts, the British have buried their cables very deep, but the cables still get cut by the sheer weight of the bombardment. And crucially, it completely unhinges the British artillery response. The British have got a good artillery plan for how they're going to face the Germans, but it's dependent on people being able to see what's happening. In the fog, the forward observers can't see the Germans coming. The gunners can't see the distress flares being released by the infantry. No planes can fly until much later in the day, so there's no information from there. So no, the British guns, in some cases, aren't firing. They're actually waiting for the, the signals to be given. They're waiting for the attack to begin. And it never comes uh, until the Germans are there. And it's a case of, you know, for you, Tommy, the war is over. And the point you've made that this might be the most single devastating battle or day, I should say, for the British on the Western Front, I think is well-placed. Total casualties for the 21st of March, difficult to calculate because the paperwork is very fragmented, largely lost, but we can probably put it somewhere in the region between 70 to 75,000, including a very large number of prisoners, men who get cut off, get trapped in the various zones, can't do anything um, and have to surrender. So a huge blow and of course dealt in just 24 hours. And that is something the British have not experienced uh, before. Yeah, and surprisingly, given how important this action is, actually, it's quite difficult to really get down into the weeds in it. And a big part of the reason for that is the lack of information available within war diaries. Because actually, what commences really from the 21st onwards is about a nine-day backpedaling retreat, most of the time in contact with the enemy. Certainly, absolute confusion reigning left, right, and center, whilst the Germans push on hell for leather trying to break in and get in a more approximative way over towards Amiens. There's some real debate about actually what the plan is once the Germans break through. In fact, there may be a only a very sketchy kind of hazy plan at best. We'll come back to that, no doubt. Remember as well, the Brits, because they haven't had the time to build their rear defensive positions, have fatally overweighted their leading positions. And when what's feared actually comes to pass on that opening day, and that's that a lot of these leading areas are isolated and over and straight away, you lose a huge amount of the British strength in those four positions, in many cases without firing a shot, certainly not putting up any kind of resistance in terms of significant time which is a big factor in this plan and so what we find now is those units in the battle zone and those units in the rear areas come under pressure much quicker than they expect they're going to they come under pressure from highly organized efficient german units and all of a sudden they're fighting in a battlefield that's not of their making to a plan that they're not used to fighting and with extreme time pressure all along the front now, this is potentially a recipe for absolute disaster, and it takes some, some real courage, I think, in the form of, amongst other things, smaller units making determined stands to buy time, a little bit a la Dunkirk 1940, that actually starts to stem this flood that's moving westwards. That's very true. One thing to really emphasize here, and you've already alluded to this, is just the sheer confusion. The general expectation from really top down is that this, there's going to be a heavy offensive. It's going to be bloody and intense, but the British are going to hold the Germans somewhere in the battle zone. But in some cases, the battle zone's cleared within a matter of hours. The Germans are through, they're into the rear zone. 
problems are emerging. It's so severe, in fact, on the 21st of March that by about 2 p.m. in the afternoon, the Army Commander Hubert Goff, against actually General Headquarters orders, he says, we can't hold this position, it's collapsing. He orders a fighting retreat. It's a crucial order, actually. It probably saves the army. If he'd ordered the army to try and stand its ground and fight on, it would have just been broken up into its component pieces and would probably have been completely destroyed with, with terrifying effects for the Allies. Instead, efforts are put into place to actually begin a retreat. Now, that's not easy when you've got complete breakdown of communications. You've got German stormtrooper units in all kinds of places they shouldn't be. You've got heavy German artillery firing continuously. The Germans have also gained air superiority over part of this front as well. So they're strafing and attacking troops on the roads. It's absolutely chaotic. And trying to piece together the sense of what's happening here and put it into paper, put it onto maps, just doesn't do justice to the sense of utmost confusion. Some units are holding their ground because they've not received orders to do anything else. Other units are clearing out. Some units are panicking. There are instances of panic, especially in the rear areas where suddenly German stormtroopers are shooting at you and you're just a logistician or you're a staff officer and you think, what the hell is going on? Jump into your car and you race away. And yet within this, there's some real tales of courage and heroism where small groups hold the line, fight rearguard actions, fight defensive actions. And of course, it's across a vast front as well. And the some of these actions are not even recognised at the time, where you've just got perhaps a company or a half company of British troops turn and fight to try and hold a position, uh, in some cases against overwhelming odds. And it's testament, I think, to something that in some ways contradicts what we said at the start of the episode. And this is that the, we've painted this picture of a tired army, in some ways a demoralised army, not a defeatist army, but certainly a despondent one. Its mood changes quite dramatically in March 1918. Suddenly, it's, it's, it's up against it, and it's either fight or, or perish. And the, the courage of some of these rearguards and the defiance of them, and also the ability of the army to just keep moving in this fighting retreat, I think it echoes the Great Retreat of 1914 from Mons, which you've covered. But of course, it's on a much, much larger scale. It's on a vastly larger scale, and it's involving lots of more modern equipment as well. Yeah, it is indeed. And it's one of those that when we do get into it and start researching this subject, it's it's fascinating because the story for me almost breaks down into multiple individual stories because you've got units crisscrossing all across the battlefield, in some cases leaving a company or a platoon or even a single machine gun behind just to try and buy a little bit of breathing space and to allow the rest of the unit to set up a more formal defensive position. But the general order of the day is going westwards. Most of these units are trying to make their way, in some cases make their way to a, a geographical barrier, something like the River Somme, which becomes something of a, a marker for many troops before they can actually buy themselves a bit of time to get clear. You've also got, if you remember as well, logistics train trying to move westwards. So you've got traffic jams building up on all the major roads. You've got the Germans hot on those heels. You've also got artillery bombardments preceding that. The main thing that we need to consider, though, and bear in mind, this is a dozens of miles getting taken. Ground that has been uh, has been lost in a day that has taken four or five months during the Battle of the Somme to be captured. This is a really significant, significant advance as far as the Germans are concerned. But one thing we need to remember, the Germans are going westwards. They are outstripping their own guns. They're crossing over destroyed battlefield. They're taking casualties all the time whilst doing it whilst the Brits are falling back towards their own supply lines. 
They've got troops in rear areas who can come up. They're managing to fight over ground that's less destroyed. And the logistics battle that's going on behind the front line battle starts fairly quickly, I think, Spence, to take a toll. It really does. And this is something that the Germans have anticipated for. They expect an advance. They have assigned materials to actually try and come forward. But they've not got the kind of experience of doing this on a devastated battlefield like the Western Front. They're drawing their logistics lessons from the Eastern Front, and that's got plenty of challenges, poor roads, almost non-existent infrastructure. But the devastated zone in the Somme is just like nothing on earth, where you've got just shell holes for miles upon end. Things like clean water are difficult to come by. Keeping up with the German advance is really, really difficult. And the Germans use trucks, they also use vast amounts of horse-drawn transport, but essentially they, they outrun, the German advance outruns its own logistics. The stormtroopers can go so far, but eventually they're going to need to be fed, they're going to need ammunition. Stormtroopers actually try and reprovision themselves by raiding British supply dumps, but that actually can sometimes have negative effects because the British are well-provisioned. And there's all kinds of anecdotes about, perhaps not so much stormtroopers, but certainly second-line Germans troops coming up and occupying the area and they get into a wine cellar and that's it their combat ineffective because they're they're having a bit of a party or in other cases they've got into a british supply dump and found it's absolutely packed with food and they just sit down and eat it all remember this is an army that's perpetually short of food and it really does disrupt the advance in places but crucially the Really about five to six days into the advance, the Germans logistically have completely outrun it and they just cannot sustain the pressure on the British front, especially in terms of artillery ammunition. The art German artillery train's getting more and more ragged as it's trying to keep up. The heavy artillery can't keep up at all. Medium artillery is struggling. Only field artillery is left, whereas the British are falling back further and further onto heavy artillery positions that are able to inflict some pretty stinging losses on the Germans. So it's a it's a battle of logistics, and it's one where the Allies ultimately have the advantage. But a crucial point is that Fifth Army, battered as it is, blooded as it is, and it's a harrowing experience to be in Fifth Army, it holds itself together. The Germans really want Fifth Army to splinter in front of it, and it never does. There's always enough of a coherent formation in front of it to make the Germans fight. And yes, the Germans push Fifth Army back, but what crucially what they don't do is either encircle it or destroy it. They maul it, to be sure, but by the end of this battle, Fifth Army is still occupying a line. It's a ragged line, it's a, a pretty shaky line, it doesn't matter. The Germans have not broken clean through, and that is going to unhinge, ultimately, the longer plans for the German offensive. Yeah, and I think whilst we're, we're looking at the longer plans, it's worth considering what the Germans thought about their general plans. And, and this is, I think, one of the, potentially one of the issues that we have in the first place, because is there really a, an absolutely coherent idea of what are we trying to do? There's a famous phrase, and Spencer, I'm sure you know exactly who the author of this is, and that's that the German army will break through and the rest will follow. I've got Ruprecht in my mind there. You'll tell me if it's somebody other than that. But the idea is get in a general area through the line and we'll kind of figure it out. Now, there is an obvious objective actually here, and that's the, the British hub town of Amiens behind the lines. But is there any defined strategy saying this is exactly where we're going and this is what we're going to do once we get through? Well, there isn't. And I think the quote is actually from Ludendorff, Eric Ludendorff himself, who's commanding the German army in the West. And it's very much his vision for the German spring offensives are using. And the idea being 
attack this junction point between the British and the French, force the British to retreat north, separate them from the French. The French will fall back to cover Paris. The British will fall back in the opposite direction to cover the uh, Channel port. And that's the, the broad plan. But in terms of setting key objectives, Ludendorff has missed a huge opportunity because he's not understood the importance of the city of Amiens, which the Germans were within artillery range of by the end of March. And this is the main logistic hub for the entire British army in this region. If Amiens is lost or even just disrupted by sufficiently heavy artillery bombardment, the knock-on effects for the British army are going to be absolutely huge. It's the most important logistics hub in that part of the battlefield. And Lindorf doesn't understand this at all. In fact, his, it doesn't become an objective until basically the offensive has spent itself. And by then, it's too late. The Germans aren't going to get into Amiens. Um, and the, the overall aim, in fact, is not entirely clear. And this is going to become more and more apparent as the offensive goes on. Because after March, that spent, uh, is spent... Germans try and attack towards Arras in Operation Mars at the end of March, and it actually goes really badly wrong for them. They run into a much better prepared British position, and they get repulsed effectively. And so a new offensive gets opened up in April, much further north, and it's actually revisiting battlefield we've already covered, and that's the battlefield of Third Eep. Indeed, and I wonder, given how much I'm enjoying this particular episode and this this epic story that we're going to have to tell, I wonder if we're going to have to go Ludendorff-esque and make that part two, in fact, of the Spring Offensive. I think that's a great way to tell that story because there's just so much to cover here. that We can, uh, we can do what the Germans failed to do, which is recognise, in fact, that we need to switch our target somewhat. And instead of covering the Great Spring Offensive in one great episode, let's cover it in two because there's plenty more to come. But what we can say is we finished this sort of nine-day period. If we bring it to the end of March 1918, the Brits absolutely have been on the back foot. There have been some serious territorial gains made. Importantly, though, not particularly... How do we say this correctly? Importantly, not important territorial gains. Ground has been given, lives have been lost, prisoners have been captured. But has anything really significant been taken in that, in that ground? In terms of objectives, apart from the casualties inflicted on the British Army and the loss of equipment, which is, is really significant, no, the Germans have actually just captured a devastating a devastated area which they'd surrendered at the end of 1917. And now they actually find themselves with the same problems we've mentioned the British having, that they've inherited this wrecked area. Yes, the British have partially rebuilt it. Now the Germans have blown it to pieces with their offensive. There's nothing of any great strategic value here nearest thing is Amiens. But what they have done is they've given the Allies an almighty fright. And initially, and this is where I think we can look at it in part two, it seems to be they might the Germans might achieve something because the, the French react by essentially drawing themselves in. They don't want to be caught up in this inferno. The British, I won't say panic, but British GHQ is really shaken by what's happened. Remember, the British GHQ has been relying on these nicely worded documents saying, yes, we'll definitely hold the Germans in the battle zone for several days. In fact, the Germans are through the battle zone on day one, essentially. So that's given a huge shock. Allied politicians are horrified. Think how surprising this looks to Allied politicians who are used to battles that last months and gain two or three miles. Suddenly, the Germans have broken through in a day. And this is absolutely shocking to both politicians, the public, and the military. So, although in hindsight, we can say, in some ways, this is an illusionary victory, or uh, the Germans use a phrase, a victory without profit. And it is those things. 
But that doesn't seem the case in March in uh, 1918. And to Ludendorff, he is by no means discouraged by what's happened. He's dealt an absolutely massive blow to the British, and he's confident he can do it again. And he's going to attack, as we say, in, and we'll cover this in part two, up in the north on the Old Eat battlefield, and that is going to be another epic engagement. It will indeed, and that's exactly what we're going to be going on to next time. So join us as we head north and cover the area, the fighting around the Battle of the Lease, and see exactly what happens with the remainder of the spring offensive. There's plenty more to go, and there's going to be lots more fighting before finally the tide of war is going to turn, and it's going to turn decisively after the spring offensive. And just a final thing to do before we leave, and that's to ask you or to mention to you, you know, if you're enjoying this series, we're having such a great time sharing these stories with you, then do please check out our Battle Guide Patreon, where you can come and join a fantastic community of like-minded historians. We've got behind-the-scenes footage. You've got a chance to engage with us and tell us what you want to hear us talk about or you want to see in future videos. It's a great group growing all the time, so do check out the Battle Guide Patreon channel. If you've enjoyed this podcast, whether it's the first time you're listening to or not so quiet on the Western Front, or whether you're a regular listener, we'd really like you to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Your comments help us improve each episode, and then you let us know what you'd like us to cover in future iterations as well. So please take a minute or two to just leave your thoughts on whatever platform you're listening on. You've been listening to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, a Battle Guide production. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out the Battle Guide YouTube channel where we regularly release documentaries exploring some of the most famous and extraordinary episodes from throughout military history. If you'd like to support the Battle Guide team to create more content just like this, why not head over to our Patreon, where for the cost of just a cup of coffee, you can get access to full-length virtual battlefield tours, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, decide which subjects we cover in future podcasts and videos, and join a fantastic community of like-minded people. That's all this time. See you again soon. Which sees the makeup, the structure of a British division go from 12 battalions down to nine. It does go from 12 to nine, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shrinks by a yeah, quarter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>